1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, the Vancouver Park Board votes to remove the Stanley Park bike lane. Now what? Plus, opposition to a new modular housing project grows in Vancouver as members of the Italian Cultural Centre speak out. And City Hall red tape. We look at today's ABC motion promising to cut wait times for new housing developments. Plus, with the new password sharing rules, has Netflix accomplished the nearly impossible and angered usually polite Canadians? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on the Stanley Park bike lane. Last night, the ABC majority on the park board uh, voted to get rid of the bike lane, except where there are safety concerns. That's specifically around Brockton Point and Lumberman's Arts. The the, the decision uh, was called option C in the vote, but essentially it gets rid of the lane by May. Now, earlier today, Park Board Commissioner Angela Hare spoke to our Jill Bennett about the vote as she was the one who introduced the original motion. Take a listen.
2: Well, as uh, as we campaign with ABC, we had promised to take out the temporary bike lane from pre-COVID. This is the best solution because it's um, first of all we're taking out uh, the the temporary uh, structure of the bike lane, but we're also um, considering some uh, staff recommendations where there are certain points of the park which we which may be safety hazards or where safety would be of concern for bike users and vehicle operators, and including pedestrians. Right, so that's why we thought it was the best one.
1: That is uh, Angela Hare. She's a commissioner with the Vancouver Park Board speaking to our Jill Bennett. Well, joining me now is Peter Ladner. He's a board member of the David Suzuki Foundation. He's also board chair of BC Cycling Coalition and a former Vancouver City Councilor. Peter, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jazz. My pleasure. Yeah, good to hear your voice. It's been a while since we've chatted. Uh, first and foremost, uh, what's wrong with this decision in your mind?
0: Oh, it's just such a tremendous disappointment. I mean, we were so close to having a protected bike route right around that park, which would have been such an amenity for Vancouver, where minutes from downtown, tourists could go and get views of English Bay, um, the Working Harbor, the North Shore Mountains, Lionsgate Bridge. And had a very wonderful but very accessible cycling experience, which would only happen for many people if it was fully protected. But it's all been ripped out. And Vancouver, not all but a bit of it. And Vancouver now takes a step backwards while all the big, progressive, interesting, wonderful cities in the world, New York, London, Paris, Los Angeles, are all spending millions and millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars, expanding their cycle routes, and we're taking one out in a ready park. It's just, it's just so unnecessary, disappointing, and there are, there are no big
1: wins on this thing. Peter, what do you say to those who will say, wait a minute here, ABC promised they were going to do this, they ran on it, they got elected, they're now implementing it. Uh, this is what they ran on, and this is what the citizens well, of Vancouver voted on, and, and they are elected and now implementing that very, uh, those very policies that they were talking about.
0: Actually, Jazz, you're a former journalist, you are a journalist, Go check. There is no record of ABC ever promising to do this. On the contrary, when they were asked by Hub Cycling, which is the only record that I've been able to find, Mm -hmm. what do you think about the bike lane? Five of the six ABC commissioners who got elected said, we like it, and we'd like to have a permanent one. They like the temporary one, and they like to have a permanent one, and the people who argued against the bike lanes, Tricia Barker, for example, did not get elected. Not one Counselor or in the city on the park board or on the park board who argued against bike lanes got elected so this whole thing that they promised us i don't know where that came from they're okay. making that up
1: i will look into that for sure but now one of the things that the, they've done is also here is ask the uh, park board staff to report back uh and hopefully have a plan by summer 2024 for a new dedicated bike lane uh, are you against a dedicated bike lane if a new one can be constructed, whatever the budget may be, uh, or would you be in favor of that in constructing a new lane in that park?
0: Uh, no, actually. I think there, are, there ought to be a protected bike lane in the park, but if you look at what the staff report said, it's going to be $50 million or something in years hence. It's got to work its way onto some capital budget. I don't think it's it's useful. I don't think it's fiscally prudent. and I, I don't think it's... Um, Practical to expect that that's ever going to get built while these ABC commissioners are in power. The only feasible way to do a bike lane is to do it on the existing pavement and work out the problems as we're pretty well all worked out already about accessing the businesses, providing parking for people in all different places, allowing tour buses to get through, having bypasses for the uh, horse and buggy and all that kind of thing. So we were so close to getting it right and it got ripped out for no apparent reason.
1: Uh, you you were saying in your uh, uh, initial response that you know other progressive cities are spending millions of dollars. I mean, it isn't it's fair to say that Vancouver has spent a lot of money? time and political capital on building bike lanes, not just in Stanley Park, but uh, more importantly, in downtown Vancouver, uh, in and around the seawall as well. Uh, It's not like the city is walking away from bike lanes. It's still, I think, uh, as part of its broader discourse, whether it be a left-wing party or a right-wing party, still would generally, broadly speaking, support bike lanes.
0: You'd think so, but they didn't last night. They, they They voted to take it out, to spend a third of a million dollars taking it out. And I think to your point, uh, look what happened when we put the bike lane on Beach Avenue. We didn't. I mean, the the Envision Council did. Mm-hmm. It became the most popular bike lane in North America. And it shows what happens when you can provide a clear, protected, wide, proper bike lane that accommodates traffic, it accommodates buses, and get, people, get the bikes off the little windy road or, or path along the seawall where they're crashing into people half the time and and just it, now they don't even want them down. They, they're banned from the seawall because it's so much safer for the pedestrians not to
1: mix it up with bikes. If you take the Stanley Park decision away from us, let's, let's just put that aside for a second. The city, would, is it fair to say, has done a decent job, whether it be left-wing or right and whoever's running the, the the government and municipally. Do, do you think the city has done a good job of building a bicycle lane network in and around the city? Oh, absolutely. Definitely.
0: And they continue to expand it and improve it and, and make it more accessible. And the numbers of cyclists are going up accordingly because people will cycle if it's protected. They will not cycle, many of them, if it's not protected. And uh, as a regular cyclist, my I just rode back up and down in down, downtown today and back in my suit. And uh, I love the bike lanes, but I'm a sort of a hardcore cyclist compared to the people who would really want to for Stanley Park. I don't, I can sort of, I've done around the park on my with my fancy cycling friends. But when I go there with my grandson, who's with them six years old, when I last been up there with him, he, I wouldn't think of taking him there if it wasn't protected.
1: Yeah. Do you think there is still more room to take out road network or uh, car lanes uh, for uh, bicycles? Not necessarily. In, I'm talking about the park, but generally in the city, do you still think there's more? There's greater opportunity to take away some lanes that have been traditionally there for for uh, for cars and trucks and use them dedicated, use them for bikes.
0: Yeah, I, I I think we've got to make every effort to accommodate all the users. And I ride, I drive a car too, and I take buses too, and I recognize you've got to make space for those and and commercial uh, goods movement. But I think we're entering an era where. Uh, we can't keep building out our cities around cars. And we are finding that, if, especially with e-bikes, Jazz, yeah. the people who have e-bikes are now, in, it widens the range of, of cycling to a lot of people who didn't have the fitness for regular bikes and didn't have the tolerance for all the hills and the workout you have to get. And I think we should mold more them And, more. and uh, we can do it, uh, hopefully we can do it, but not always without disrupting um, vehicle traffic as we've known it. But I think the more choices you make, the more likely people are going to have – there's also an affordability thing. How, how much longer can people afford to keep driving and owning cars and pay all those gas prices and stuff? We should be providing options for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I see it when I leave the show every day, when I walk to my vehicle, drive back to the suburbs, but you see the amount of people on on different types of motorized uh, 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 you know uh, machines. It's not just bikes, but it's uh, folks mm-hmm. whizzing by. It could be the guy working for Uber Eats or whatever it may be, but it's busy down here, and I, and I totally understand where you're coming from. So in regards to this plan for 2024, they want the, the staff, park board staff, to report back uh, by summer 2024 on plans for a new dedicated bike lane. You just don't think that's going to happen just because of the cost?
0: It's a hoax. Not just the cost, but you're going to have to carve through Stanley Park, cut down trees and park, carve a path through the forest. Is that really, do you think that's going to happen? I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah.
1: Peter, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to having you on the show again. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks, Jazz.
1: Let's talk about modular housing. Now, since 2017, uh, the BCNDP government has relied on temporary modular housing across the po- province as a, a rapid solution to getting people off the streets. Think uh, homelessness, think mental health and addiction. And you hear these stories uh, in, in many communities uh, where the government goes in to put in some modular housing. Uh, it promises around the clock support, including you know mental health and addiction issues, primary care, all of that. You heard some of that uh, already um, in Vancouver, not too long ago in Kitslano, at Arbutus and Seventh, uh, where there was a desire to put uh, a building in a neighborhood with schools and it's been traditionally a single family home. And um, they're tough to house individuals. So there's a huge push by the community uh, in regards to not wanting uh, that project uh, in Kitsilano. Uh, in many cases, it's done, according to government, that you don't want to load inner city inner city areas with some of these challenges or at least the, the bulk of those challenges think downtown east side that they want to move around some of these modular housing units but to bring them in sort of traditional Single-family neighborhoods or non-traditional neighborhoods that generally haven't had this type of housing—you have to consult. Well, the Italian Cultural Center is asking the City of Vancouver uh, to uh, to look at, relook at rezoning uh, for their community. Uh, the province wants to bring in, the city wants to bring in 65 supporting housing units, but it's about consultation uh, as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the challenges that the Italian Cultural Center leadership feels is uh, that, that have been been addressed so far is mario michelli he's the executive director of the italian cultural center mario thank you for joining us
3: thank you for having me jess
1: lots to talk about here uh first and foremost broadly what is the the italian cultural center and i guess neighbors in that area what is their opposition to this supportive housing that the city is looking at
3: well um I, you know, I represent the hundreds of thousands of uh, visitors that we have here at the Italian Cultural Centre annually. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we're concerned with is the lack of uh, consultation and really the lack of transparency. We originally spoke to uh, the city when this was first proposed, and my request was, I just need to really understand who it is that's going to be housed at this location, and um, if they could provide me with that information. They also mentioned they were going to have a community advisory group that was going to be put together. So I said, by all means, let me know. I'd be more than happy to sit and discuss this. Well, nothing ever transpired. And what we thought was going to be uh, a facility where we would have... Uh, a home for adults, seniors, and people with disabilities who are are experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness. That's what we thought we were going to get, and it's still in their uh, materials. What we find out, uh, actually on Sunday, somebody phoned me and said, did you know this is going to be going before council on Tuesday? That was the first I had heard. No one had reached out to let us know. And now we find out it's low barrier housing, which uh, is going to house those with mental uh, health issues and addiction. And of course, you could contact say that those are people with disabilities. I understand that, but it just isn't forthright in the documentation.
1: And and just to confirm, these are 64 units of low-barrier housing, which will be uh, potentially a few hundred metres away from the Italian Cultural Centre, Trout Lake Park, and Lord Beaconsfield um, uh, Elementary School.
3: school. Yeah, and here at the Italian Cultural Centre, we have a K-7, we have two daycare facilities. We have seniors programs that are run here quite regularly and youth sports activities that take part in our facility as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's less than 100 meters from uh, our independent senior living home called Casa Serena and our uh, full care facility called Villa Carital for those who require constant help. So the proximity to these facilities is a little disconcerting because we don't know enough about who's going to be housed. What are the risk mitigation factors that they considered if they're going to invite this community into our neighborhood. These you're, are the things that we know nothing about. You're not Sorry.
1: ideologically opposed to modular housing in a neighborhood. Is this more about a consultation and speaking to the community and allaying some of the concerns, or, do you just, or is the community more so just opposed to bringing in individuals dealing with homelessness and mental health and addiction challenges?
3: I, I think there's a couple of issues. You can appreciate that when I found out Sunday afternoon about this, I've been immersed in trying to bring myself up to speed on not only what the city's doing, mm-hmm. but what these modular pieces recommend. And, of course, there's there's a lot of evidence out there that says it doesn't work. We've seen some examples at Hastings and Cassiar. We had an issue here with the uh, Winnebago's uh, that were parked along Slocan. So mm-hmm. our experience here is one that's disconcerting. Uh, even the Victoria Chief of Police uh, Del Manic, was concerned about the same facility in his city. so it just seems as though we're we're putting this program in. I'm not sure it's the best process, not only for the neighborhood but for the residents mm-hmm. sixty four residents that are, have essentially been homeless and dealing with very uh, difficult issues is hard to manage.
1: What do you say to the argument that, look, there was opposition, and I believe it was in Coquitlam, to a similar um, modular housing unit. There's been opposition in Richmond to, to a similar modular housing unit. There's been opposition in Vancouver and many other communities as well. But once they are built, they become part of the community and you don't hear about the worst case scenario of anybody being attacked or, I mean, we have heard some bad stories. I think Nanaimo was a classic example where they didn't build the wraparound services when they put these structures up and really, to be honest with you, not destroyed downtown, but really made it difficult for people to be in and around that area. Nanaimo I think is a glaring reminder, but some would argue, generally speaking, these modular housing units have been okay and they have uh, been decent neighbors, good neighbors in these communities.
3: You you know, if if that's the case, we would gladly support that. My concern is that the staffing that's been recommended for this particular facility Mm -hmm. doesn't include, when I hear wraparound services, that's kind of a a buzzword. What does wraparound services look like? Uh, Are they going to have the services in-house? It appears that from their operational report, it's not going to be in-house. So I'm not sure what they're going to have in place. The one thing we know is they have two staff that will be there 24-7, an operations manager, one support staff, a chef, and one home support staff. So I have concerns. Then when I look at the experience and educational requirements, by the way, this is straight from their document. Mm -hmm. Their requirements are a criminal background check, a current first aid certificate, a current nonviolent crisis intervention certificate and completion of naloxone training. I I know how difficult it's been for the city to put together that crisis team for the downtown east side where they're bringing in more uh, mental health experts. I don't see anything in here that's going to have a mental health expert on site for 64 residents who come with high risk of mental illness issues, drug addiction, and more importantly, is that the right scenario for this group of of, of people?
1: So, what happens Are next? They're going to
3: receive the services.
1: What happens next for you, your community, the Italian Cultural Center, and neighbors? What would you like to see next? Are you planning anything else?
3: Well, you know, to be honest, we've had uh, less than forty-eight hours to prepare for this, or just about forty-eight hours to prepare to go to council. What we would like to see is collaboration. So if we've had other successful models, let's make sure that this is going to emulate those success models so that we don't have the concern that the community has right now. You can appreciate my phone's been ringing off the hook since people heard about this. Yeah. So the Italian Cultural Center community is, is concerned, and all we want is reassurance that the risk mitigation has been put in place and that this community is going to be safe.
1: Mario, thank you for your time today.
3: No problem at all. Thanks for having me, Jazz.
1: Let's talk a little bit about City Hall red tape and and getting permission to build a home or perhaps a larger scale uh, development. It's always uh, an issue and concern. It's constantly discussed, and it was uh, played an integral role in the last civic election here in Vancouver. Even last week, um, Cormandale Properties uh, was seeking uh, creditor protection. That's a major property developer, it had 16 properties, um, but is now seeking creditor protection, it was $700 million. And the Vancouver Sun reported. That as part of their uh, petition, there was complaint that its financial difficulties also stem in part from Vancouver's complex, expensive and slow process for developing real estate. It also went on to say that it takes years just to complete land assemblies for the larger projects and that the planning process, including rezonings and development applications also can take many years. Now, it's not the only reason uh, that, property, uh, that, uh, that property owner is uh, dealing with some financial challenges, but it's part of the reason. Well, today, uh, the staff at the City of Vancouver updated the city councillors in regards to their permitting and, and licensing, and some of the challenges that are there. Joining us now is Vancouver City Councillor Peter Meisner. Peter, thank you for joining us today.
4: Good afternoon, Jazz. Thanks for having me Good on.
1: afternoon. Walk me through, what did you learn? What did the staff say in regards to improving the system?
4: Yeah, so we had a great update from uh, staff uh, at uh, Council this morning around uh, the permitting. Uh, It's really a digital transformation process to expedite and streamline the permitting process. So there's now a new uh, website called uh, ePlan, and that's going to allow people to apply for, uh, pay for, and receive their building permits electronically. Uh, So that's going to be plans for uh, houses, duplexes, laneway homes, townhouses, Uh, A lot of those missing middle uh, options that we really need here in Vancouver are going to be able to be checked over in as little as two and a half weeks, and that's going to save nine weeks in that process. So um, staff have heard us loud and clear that uh, we need to resolve this issue with uh, the long and arduous permitting process. And development and uh, rezoning application process, and, and they're they're working hard on it.
1: So, uh, just walk. I want, I want to make sure I get these numbers right. So, right now, you're saying it takes about nine weeks to do it the old fashioned way. Would do, do you show up at the front counter there, and and it's processed in that in that way?
4: Yeah, it's actually a bit longer than that, so we're going to save nine weeks. So it's going to take two and a half weeks, as little as two and a half weeks, and previously it was taking about 11 to 12 weeks. And as for houses, duplexes, laneways, and townhouses, obviously uh, larger developments are, are taking longer than that.
1: So in this case, if I'm building a single-family home and, and just wanted to, to put in my, my plans, uh, is that part of the process or it's separate?
4: No, it's part of the process. So you'll be able to do that on ePlan, on the ePlan portal, all online. Um, and this is just at the at the time for these smaller developments, uh, including you know houses, duplexes, etc. Uh, but we are looking at, or staff is looking at, uh, what they can do to uh, digitize the process for larger developments, so is, condos, that sort of thing.
1: Is something lost there? I mean, I, I'm all for efficiencies, but efficiencies also shouldn't cut corners. I mean, we have building inspectors, we have rules and laws and processes for a reason in regards to houses, houses being built safely, uh, respecting zoning rules, and making sure uh, they're it's done properly for the safety of the homeowner and, of course, uh, our neighborhoods. Is then how do we know that something isn't lost here when you you go from, as you say, eleven, twelve weeks to two and a half weeks?
4: Yeah, I, I, un, I understand the concern. Um, the review process internally hasn't really changed, but what this is going to do uh, is make the expectations for the application submission much more clear up front. So we're not having this thing where people are submitting applications, they're coming back because there's an issue with it, then they're submitting it again, it's maybe going to somebody else, and then it's coming back to the applicant again. So it's just going to streamline things uh, you know, by in, you know ingesting that application digitally as opposed to person dealing with one or two or possibly three different planners over the course of the project.
1: All right. Are other municipalities doing this already?
4: Yeah, we're looking at other, uh, other cities that are facing similar challenges in terms of the just unprecedented volume of applications that Vancouver is receiving. For Broadway Plan, for example, uh, there's, just, uh, there, there's over 100 applications uh, that have been received, and uh, that's putting you know, incredible strain on staff. So we need to find ways to streamline, streamline this process. And ePlan is a start, but it's just, it's just a start. Um, you know, During our campaign, we promised to get down to 3331, uh, so three days for home renovations, for example, three weeks for single-family. Three months for multifamily and a year for high rises, which is now taking currently about it can take up to six years right now um, so we need to get those numbers down so this is just one of the first steps towards towards that but it 's significant it 's going to make a difference
1: do you still need to hire more people i mean you can you can find efficiencies digitally, but at the end of the day it's you 're still reading plans you 're still analyzing you 're still questioning. Uh, challenging assumptions made by developers, architects, all of those folks that are running these big projects. Is it still a question where you need more staff at the city city level?
4: Yeah, you know, I asked that in council today. You know, what if we, um, you know, I've heard from developers uh, at, at Builders, uh, you know, who said, hey, we'd be happy to pay a little bit more in terms of permit fees if we knew that we would get this uh, process quicker. Um, but they're actually at a, a bit of a deficit right now in, in this department. They don't have enough staff. There's a huge labor shortage. There's been lots of turnover. So they are actually going out to post secondary um, institutions to gauge interest in, in some of the available positions. So they were at BCIT recently. They mentioned that during council today. Um, but there's actually a labor shortage in this area. So yes, I, I personally believe that we need more staff, but they can't even hire enough staff to staff it at uh, to fill all the vacancies that we have right now
1: is city hall open evenings and weekends uh to to deal with some of this i'm just curious because that's part of the reason is it's you know folks are busy building their present product projects and sometimes that nine to five work day doesn't actually fit into a, a lot of developers uh day and project managers day is there any conversation or are you doing that already
4: Yeah, you know, I think that's a good point, Jaz. There is 311, so uh, applicants can call 311 and be connected to uh, a plan checker, essentially. Uh, There used to be a a dedicated inquiry line for that, but that's now being uh, through 311. 311 is 24 hours, but the staff are not working on weekends or evenings. Uh, I think, you know, all options need to be on the table here. We have a housing crisis and everyone acknowledges acknowledges that this is a significant part of the problem. So I think, you know, it's worth looking at for sure.
1: Do you think Vancouver's brand, uh, Damage is not not the white, right word, but um, I, I just think in regards to building in this city, there are some challenges, first of all, as you say, uh, dealing with streamlining some of this, um, the challenges before you at City Hall. And the other... Uh, I guess cultural challenge we have is that anybody trying to build anything somehow is viewed as what's that term profiteer, whatever that means. Uh, that you know people are risking their capital, they're building homes, whether it be a small mom and pop developer do, doing one single family home, multi multi family, or a big developer doing high rises. But these folks are building homes. Um, culturally, have we somehow been vilifying developers and vilifying home builders? Um, which is impacting the broader brand of Vancouver.
4: Yeah, Jess, I hear you. I mean, I think definitely in the past that that has been the case. Uh, It's been the big bad developer, um, you know, narrative. But, I mean, the fact is, and I think more and more people are realizing that we, we do need to build more homes. And, you know, most of us, me or you, you know, I don't have the skill set to, to build a house, right, um, or to build a multifamily building. And we're all pretty much living in buildings built by builders or, or large developers. So we need to work with those developers. Those developers are ready to build those homes. Um, they, they have lots of, uh, you know, applications in the queue, right, uh, you know, hundreds uh, of uh, rental units, many of them below market rentals. So we need to expedite those applications. Uh, you know, because we have a vacancy uh, rate crisis. We have one of the lowest vacancy rates uh, in Canada. We have an affordability crisis. And a big part of that is the fact that it's so difficult to build here. So it's part, I think that narrative is shifting. And thankfully, uh, we have a council here that uh, understands uh, that industry needs is, you know, Plays a big part in addressing this uh, this issue.
1: So let, I just want to confirm the numbers from you once again. Three days for is that single family home?
4: You're talking for the uh, for the new E plan. Uh, e plan, yeah. Yeah, so it, it's actually a two and a half weeks down, uh, cuts off about nine weeks off the process. But we are looking to get to three days for renovations and three weeks for single family homes. That's our 3331 process we made during our election campaign. This is just a step towards that. We're not there yet, but uh, we're working hard on it. Staff's working hard on it. And
1: one year for high rises, the, the bigger high that's, rises.
4: That's what we're looking to get to. I mean, right now it can take up to six years. So you can imagine how much things can change in six years, whether that's labor costs, uh, labor shortages, there's all sorts of inflation interest rates people's uh, uh uh holding costs on pieces of land um you reference Cor- coromandel's situation and uh you know the fact is is if you're holding a, a very expensive piece of property for a long time i mean not too many developers can can handle that these are you know ex- uh, huge expenses
1: how long will this take Will this uh, in regards to your three 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 and one is is that a year away two years away
4: uh, we're hoping to get there within the next year or so. I mean, it's uh, it's a evolving situation. I can assure you that staff are working very hard on this. They understand what a high priority priority it is for us, and we're going to continue to keep uh, uh, keep pushing that work forward as as fast as possible.
1: Peter, thanks for your time today. My pleasure, Jazz. Well, let's revisit our top story today. Last night, the ABC majority on the Park Board voted to get rid of the bike lane, except where. There are safety concerns That's around Brockton Point and Lumberman's Arch. Uh, the option that the, they voted for, I guess, would be option C, which essentially gets rid of the lane by May. Now, park board staff have been asked to report back uh, on plans for a new dedicated bike lane. Now, one of the individuals who voted last night is Scott Jensen. He is an ABC Vancouver park board commissioner, and he joins us now. Scott, thank you for joining us.
2: Always a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you
1: very much. So so how difficult was this decision last night?
2: It it was very difficult. We've been at this since uh, December 5th. And, uh, you know, again, I have to uh, give credit to the part, to the GM, and and everyone that's been involved with this. uh, You know, obviously, it predates us. But uh, uh, since December 5th, this has been, you know, the one thing that's really been on my calendar every single day. I think this is my third time talking with you. Um, mm-hmm. And, and just to bring this back, this is uh, actually the 100th day since our, our election today. And uh, so a big shout out to uh, Mayor Ken Sim and all of the ABC uh councillors, school trustees, including Victoria Young, and to all of my colleagues on on, uh, Park Board.
1: Do you think this is the right decision, considering there's a significant uh, uh, um, community out there that cycles on a regular basis? It is where we need to be over the long term in regards to different modes of transportation, not just vehicles, but bicycles as well. Do you see... uh, uh, fundamentally, that we can actually put in a uh, a bicycle lane that is standalone for cyclists and other modes of transportation in that park.
2: Well, well yes, I do. And and, and going back to, to what I said is this has been something that I've been uh, thinking about and working on. Uh, you know, since uh, just before December fifth, honestly. Um, you know, to be honest, I spent today reading the costing of bicycle infrastructure and programs in, in Canada uh, to get a better understanding of. of uh, again, the figures that have been shared with us publicly, and, uh, but ultimately, um, with yesterday's vote, we had a clear path forward for the future of Stanley Park Drive, um, including kind of what's going to be removed, when it will be removed by, and when we can expect new cycling infrastructure. Uh,
1: I was speaking to Peter Ladner, as you know, a former Vancouver City Councillor, um, avid cyclist. Uh, he expressed his disappointment. Take a listen uh, to his comments on this show a few hours ago.
0: Oh, it's just such a tremendous disappointment. I mean, we were so close to having a protected bike route right around that park, which would have been such an amenity for Vancouver, where minutes from downtown, tourists could go and get views of English Bay. Working Harbour, the North Shore Mountains, Lionsgate Bridge, and had a very wonderful but very accessible cycling experience, which would only happen for many people if it was fully protected. But it's all been ripped out. And Vancouver now takes a step backwards while all the big cities in the world are all spending hundreds of millions of dollars expanding their cycle routes. And we're taking one out in a
1: ready park. What do you say to Mr. Ladner's comments?
2: Well, I, again, I think right on the, the nose there that uh, all across the world, people are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on dedicated cycling infrastructure, And uh, with that, um, you know, we didn't want to nickel and dime on, on what we're doing. And in fact, uh, what we really wanted to do is, is give staff to really determine the work that needed to reverse um, or to put in um, you know, a world-class cycling lane. And so for us, uh, we do really value Stanley Park to the point that we're willing to take that extra time to ensure that the stakeholders, and again, I I made a whole point of this yesterday, that that the stakeholders have had their input so that what we have is going to be permanent, not semi-permanent, but permanent, and and again, have the aesthetics and look that really fit Stanley Park. Again, looking from riding down from up the hill to Prospect Point and then all the way down, um, you know, you, you come to these, these concrete barriers, uh, then you pass by, you know, a lovely, you know, just a beautiful park, followed by, you know, just numerous orange and, uh, cones. It just looks uh, like a construction zone. We can do better. We promise to do better. And, and that's what our aim is to do. Uh- Peter Ladner, by the way, is going to be ecstatic next year. And, and so this is this is the thing is you know I, I know it's difficult uh, f- for people to have patience. Um, it's difficult for myself to have that. Uh, but you know when we went into this meeting yesterday, uh, and and you know stakeholders had not been provided an opportunity to really provide their input, uh, that concerned me because as we go to make this permanent. Um, if it's not done properly, then we have some really uh, bigger concern, really big concerns to deal now, with.
1: Now, one of the things Mr. Ladner did say was, look, you're going to have to cut trees. You're going to have to open up a lane of some sort, which means you are going to be cutting uh, trees, a branch, whatever it may be. You're going to have to create a path somewhere along Stanley Park, number one, uh, which is not the right thing to do. I've heard that yesterday as well. Secondly... Uh, you know you're throwing you're talking about millions of dollars potentially i'm told potentially 50 million i don't know if that number is right but it's going to cost money at the end of the day does the park board have any money or do you, or have you had that commitment from city hall because city council is going to be controlling that budget even though they are your colleagues but any guarantee that's that that can actually be done because of the potentially millions of dollars that may be required
2: well and this is the, the challenge is, is and i get this, this is why this is such a contentious issue is because on both sides there seems to be individuals on social media and on them, on on media in general who you know are making up facts on their own there is no tree that's going to be cut down for any infrastructure in stanley park um, the only infrastructure that's going to be installed will be on top of current infrastructure you know stanley park is sacred land so Anything that we do to that land it has a lot to do. We, there's a, a whole lot of homework that has to be done. So we are not going to be expanding that footprint. We are just going to make it better. Um, and so with with Mr. Ladner's comments, you know, I'm not sure what he's envisioning. It's not what I'm envisioning. And um, so let's put that to rest. If Peter Ladner wants to come into the uh, Stanley Park and ch- chop down a tree, we'll make sure the park rangers meet him and stop him. But so- that is not...
1: So, just want to Um, confirm: no trees are coming down, and you you think you can still put a bike lane in with the present infrastructure, and still keep motorists, uh, businesses, and cyclists happy?
2: I do, you know, and and again, I I look at all the examples littered throughout Vancouver, and it is, you know, Vancouver. It it has taken time to get some of these this cycling infrastructure installed in Vancouver, but when it's done well and when it's done right. Uh, there aren't any concerns. So what we need to do is use that as our guidepost and move that way. Um, if we stay um, in this uh, argument, we, we're not going to move forward. The idea is that we need to come together. And, and again, I, I've met with uh, individuals Hub. I've met uh, with uh, the Love the Lane uh, group. And so I understand their concerns. I understand what they want to see in the park. And, and you know, again, they are one of the stakeholders that, that may or may not have been included in the final assessment that was put to us yesterday. So we want to make sure that they are heard just as well as Brockton Point, just as well as the Tea House, just as well as all the user groups that go in there. So, you know, it is a big decision and, and it we need to have all the facts and all the information to us first.
1: Scott, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it.
2: Oh my pleasure, always a pleasure. By the way, it won't cost up to twenty million dollars. Again, read the, the 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 here it is the costing of bicycle uh, bicycle infrastructure programs in Canada. Seventy two
1: pages, great read for any Vancouverite. Enjoy. <laughs> we will definitely do that and by the way it, so it's not going to cost 50 it's not going to cost 20 there's no budget obviously at this point but no. but it, it, i just want to reiterate this once again you think you can get it done with the present infrastructure that's already there no trees are coming down that's right all right we'll take your word for it and we'll chat very soon as i'm sure this pro, this issue is November not going
2: 23 i expect my phone to be ringing i
1: thank will you, definitely be calling thank you scott
2: thank you bye bye
1: You may recall a few days ago Uh, we had a conversation about Netflix and the fact that uh, they announced that they're cracking down on password sharing. In fact, uh, they said they're going to focus on four countries, Mexico, Spain, New Zealand, and Canada. We're basically the testing site for these new password uh, restrictions. And once they do that, though I'm sure hitting the um, much bigger uh, market of the United States and many other uh, markets uh, in Europe. But I've noticed over the uh, last, Two or three days, a lot of pushback from Canadians and folks uh, who have seen uh, what this password uh, crackdown is doing. A lot of pushback on social media. Take a listen to some of the comments.
0: What if I don't watch my TV in the basement for over a month? Well, then that one would be blocked. What if I don't watch Netflix on my phone for a month? Well, it will be blocked what happens if we have another location like a cottage or a secondary home well you're gonna have to pay $7.99 for an extra account so I know I'm canceling my account
2: my mom isn't technologically savvy like Mm -hmm. a lot of folks in their 60s 70s and 80s if you're gonna make it harder for those folks to even get on your app you know what they're gonna do they're not gonna subscribe to your service (laughs) if you make it inconvenient for your convenient service they're going to go someplace else. Netflix has figured out how to turn an entire country
3: of the nicest people on the planet into outraged customers by cracking down on their password sharing. Netflix you may want to rethink password sharing and the tiers of your service because if this happens in the United States it's going to be even worse.
1: Don't annoy the Yankees. That's what he's saying there. Joining us now is Andy Barrar, tech and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. Andy, is this war? (laughs) Uh, It sure sounds like I'll tell you,
5: it's funny. It's uh, Valentine's Day, and Netflix and chill just got much more expensive in in Canada, especially if uh, you were freeloading that account. Uh, I'm curious, uh, since you're so tech savvy, um, is there a way to get around it yet? (laughs) Well, they they, they figured it out pretty good because what they have is you have the primary account holder Mm -hmm. and they're using that Wi-Fi, so the home Wi-Fi, to verify if you are a family member or not or if you're sharing it to someone outside of your family. But what they're noticing, and this is where the Canadians are really getting uh, irked about, is that you might have a family member that's going to college or to university and is not living with you. They're still part of your family But because they're away and they're not logging into your home Wi-Fi, you're going to have to pay now at least $7.99 for that additional account. And I think that's where a lot of families are getting upset about this and thinking perhaps for the first time, Jazz, of actually canceling their Netflix subscription and saving some money. Do you think
1: Netflix can weather this? I mean, people are going to complain. They're complaining now. But uh, do you think it's a question of, you know what, they're just going to keep their head down uh, and continue doing what they're doing and, and people are just going to have to accept it? Well, let's put it this way, Jazz.
5: If this doesn't go well they could back fact, become the blockbuster of streaming services, which is ironic because they were the one that took blockbuster out in the video rental service. So they, they were the first one out They're they're experimenting. This is why they're testing this in Canada because we're known to be polite, but it's not going well. So you have to wonder what's gonna happen if they roll this out south of the border. Um, Americans, I don't think are gonna take it as well as, um, as Canadians. So they could lose their subscribers, but this is what they're betting on because their entire business model, Chats is built on growth they have to keep growing the user base Mm -hmm. and with 222 million users right now and with 100 million people using it that don't have an account or with shared passwords this is their strategy and it remains to be seen if it'll work or not but i'll be watching it very closely that's for sure
1: what are executives at disney and amazon thinking in your mind right now oh i i think they're
5: watching this very closely to see uh what they're going to do it as a retaliation because they could follow suit. They could just do everyone, on all, all the streaming services start analyzing uh, IP addresses to determine if you are, in fact, sharing your password or not. But the other side is they could just keep it. They could tweet out, love is sharing your password and try to take Netflix's user base. But it comes down to the content. It costs a lot of money. These um, streaming services aren't just, you know, collecting content they're making the content netflix was the one that started making original content starting with uh, house of cards and that's expensive and now they're realizing that they can't just keep growing they have to make money at some point in time and this is their strategy and i don't know if it's going to work because people are not taking it well in canada at least
1: well i mean i guess the, some people will pay so that means more revenue for netflix but uh, in regards to growth which you still want that, that you would think that would be hampered now
5: Yes, yes, I think so because, you know, they might squeeze a little bit of money, but I don't think in the long term They're going to be able to grow that user base, especially when you consider the competition. When you're going against the likes of Disney, Apple and Amazon, they have deep pockets. So, you know, it's going to be very competitive in this streaming business. And I wonder, Jazz, I just wonder if we'll go back to seeing pirated content, people downloading on torrents, um, trying to save money because people love these shows. They just don't love paying extra to watch these and, and subscribe to these streaming services.
1: Can you see that actually happening with the, with the torrents and uh, and a sort of a video version of Napster or something like that? It, it would just turn everything upside down if that happened.
5: Yeah. So in the olden days, you would have to download the content, then you would you know put it on a hard drive and then watch it. I think what you're going to see is these people that that do the torrents they're trying to make it streaming. So they want to create an interface that kind of looks and feels like Netflix except it's all being downloaded through torrent. So the torrent is streaming. For that to work it requires a really fast internet connection but we are moving towards that and I think you might see that become more and more popular in the future if all of these streaming services keep raising their prices and cracking down on password sharing because you just can't afford to have all of them. But people love this content and they want to watch that content.
1: Well, that that's the other thing is is just the you know just the internet home internet is not cheap uh, because they offer you different streams. Then add to that basic cable. A lot of people still keep their basic cable. There is some cord cutting, of course, but many many people still keep that. And add to that, as you say, Amazon Prime, Disney. Netflix, boy, it adds up. And uh, something's got to give in the whole ecosystem somewhere. Maybe this is it at this point for, with Netflix doing this. I don't know. Uh, but I, I can't see too many people going, you know what? We're going to keep all of them because we like them so much. We can use bits and pieces. Like even today, uh, my colleague uh, Joe Bennett said, oh, uh, is, it, uh, is it Ted Lasso that on, on Apple Plus? That That's I think right. is a very popular show. She's all excited. She loves the show. I know it's got a huge fan base. It's one of those things where you pick and choose each show here and there, but then you get stuck with four of these services and you're kind of going, wait a minute, why can't I just shut one or two of them down?
5: And and people want that option. You know, they'll binge through Ted Lasso and then cancel their Apple Plus subscription. But then again, these services are going to down tier and have slow releases of episodes to keep people on their platform. So overall, the experience is almost compromised because they're trying to just make money and they're they're creating all these friction points about verifying your passwords and and all this. So at the end of the day, we end up paying more and just having a a, a worse service. So we kind of lose out because all these streaming services Stage one is growth, and then stage two is how do we monetize that? And that's where Netflix is. It's a very mature streaming company, and they're realizing they got to keep making money. And unfortunately, they think by cracking down on passwords, this is how they're going to do it.
1: Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to watch and see what shakes out in the next uh, year or so. Andy, thank you so much. Thanks, Jazz.